Hello, and welcome back to The Caliphs, the rise and fall of Arab power. My name is Zaid Wahab, and today we are going to rush through the conclusion of Al-Saffah's reign to discuss its immediate aftermath. Succession is tricky under any circumstances, but it is especially risky the first time a new dynasty tries to hand off power. Al-Saffah's chosen heir faced mortal hazards right upon his ascension, and the matter of his survival, indeed his whole dynasties, depended entirely on his political instincts and how well he could play this dangerous game. We'll see how things worked out in episode 42, The Triumphant. It feels like we've just met Al-Saffah and we're already preparing to say goodbye. I didn't do a good job with chronology last time, so I'm not sure what impression I gave you of how long he was in charge. FYI, it was about four and a half years, from early 750 to mid-754. While technically we are still not done with his reign, most of the bits I skipped had something to do with his succession. There's more material on the subject than you might expect, too. The three commanders as the Fah relied upon to keep his caliphate in line all felt they had a shot at power, and their ambitions even clashed while the caliph was still around. Before we go through as the Fah's reign chronologically to see the main incidents between these influential men, we will take a closer look at each of them individually, both as a reminder of who they were and to assess their strengths. Let's start with Abu Muslim the caliph's man in Khurasan. It's really hard to comment on the guy. He is simultaneously the one we know the most and the least about. We have so many contradictory rumors, but sadly very little of what we find on him has much substance to it. Abu Muslim was the commander who took the da'wah public in the east and first got the ball rolling with the revolution. His hold on the people of Khurasan was total, and one of the few details about him, which sources agree on, was his popularity in the province. Why he was so loved by its people is harder to say. Some sources insist he was a populist who dabbled in anti-Arab rhetoric. Others, that the Mawadi saw him as the perfect Muslim. See, we can't get two words in about the guy without encountering some opposing takes. There's another thing I wanted to address while we're talking about Khurasan. Admittedly, it's a little off-topic, but last time I mentioned the Battle of Talas, at which the Caliphate defeated the Tang Dynasty and captured several valuable Chinese prisoners of war in the process. I thought I should clarify that the Arab sources don't actually say a word about this battle, despite its deep importance to the Caliphate's intellectual history and its East more generally. All we know about it comes from Chinese sources, originally written by A. Du Huan, one of the prisoners of war from that very engagement. He may have toured the caliphate a little before he found his way back home and authored his travelogue. The work is unfortunately lost to us, but a famous uncle of Duhuan included a few quotes in a history of his own which has survived. Here are the handful of Duhuan's impressions of the caliphate, which I found translated on Wikipedia. Quote, Arabia was originally part of Persia. The men have high noses, are dark and bearded. The women are very fair. They always cover their faces outdoors, regardless of whether they are noble or base. 
Five times daily they worship God. They wear silver girdles with silver knives suspended. They do not drink wine nor use music. Their place of worship accommodates several hundreds. Every seventh day the king sits on high and speaks to those below, saying, Those who are killed by the enemy will be born in heaven above, and those who slay the enemy will receive happiness. Therefore they are usually valiant fighters. Their land is sandy and stony, not fit for cultivation, so they hunt and eat flesh. Kufa is their capital. Its men and women are attractive in appearance and large in stature. Their clothing is handsome, and their carriage and demeanor leisurely and lovely. It's nothing we didn't already know, but it's still nice to find something contemporary with the Arabs from outside their own oral traditions. What a nice thing to come out of a war. The first Arab account to mention the Battle of Talas wouldn't be put to paper for another 500 years, and the author surely must have relied on Duhuan's scholarship, whether he was aware of it or not. A cogent explanation for this puzzling gap in the Ummah's record is that there simply weren't enough Arabs in the East at the time, and without them there was nobody to generate the oral material which our early authors relied upon. The battle happened in 751, barely two years after Qahtaba had led the bulk of the Arabs west to topple the Umayyads. The commander of the Abbasid forces at Talas was an Arab, but within a couple years of this victory we're told Abu Muslim had him killed after he'd gone rogue. Circling back to our discussion of the governor of Khurasan, the east was firmly in Abu Muslim's hands, except when it came to the region's leading Arabs. We are once again working with rumors here, but in them we come across plenty of Arab men whom Abu Muslim fretted about and had killed, usually through cleverness or deceit, sort of like the ones he had fooled or double-crossed while getting the da'wah going. Al-Karmani's sons are a prime example. One of them was duped so badly that he gave the crafty Abu Muslim the names of all his most trusted men, thinking they were going to be recognized for their service, only to have every one of them put to death instead. Then further afield, we even find executions in distant Iraq blamed on the governor of Khurasan, like that of Yazid ibn Hubayr, who had been promised safety before Abu Muslim supposedly penned a paranoid letter to the caliph. Which reminds me, there's yet another assassination which gets pinned on Abu Muslim in the official narrative. Remember that apocryphal tale I told about how when the Abbasids were briefly missing in action, one of the higher-ups in the da'wah wrote to other Hashemite leaders to try and entice them to take the reins instead? Well, its protagonist shifts between accounts, but he is most often named as Abu Salma al-Khalal, sometimes aggrandized by the honorific vizier of the Prophet's clan. It's a confusing title, even within its own context, as he wasn't from the Prophet's clan and Vizier wasn't even a post yet, just a word meaning helper or executor. Abu Salma was an early member of the Da'wah, and in its infancy, he had used much of his considerable wealth to finance it. Well, we are told that he was another victim of Abu Muslims. At first, the governor of Khurasan tried his usual angry letter-writing, but the caliph wouldn't budge and he refused to have this old-time supporter of the Abbasid cause harmed in any way, and so Abu Muslim took it upon himself and he sent a man to Kufa to kill him. Now I doubt Abu Muslim was involved, but then again I have already expressed my doubts about the whole affair having took place to begin with. If I am correct, the whole thing is just meant to besmirch Abu Muslim's reputation and bring him out as a power-hungry operative who was only pro-Hashemite when it played into his advantage. But you know, maybe I am out of line casting so much doubt. 
after all several accounts engage with the character Abu Salma al-Khallal. One even offers a compelling rewrite of the tale, suggesting that the caliph thought Abu Salma had acted on Abu Muslim's orders when he tried to have the Abbasids replaced, so Abu Muslim had to have him killed to clear his own name. I guess what I'm saying is that my skepticism isn't necessarily warranted. Even though honestly, deep down, I think the reason I can't be certain I'm correct is because of how badly Abu Muslim is preserved in Arab memory. Well, Abu Muslim took a lot more time than I thought he would, so in a sense, it's good that I have so little to say about the next two ambitious commanders. Abdullah ibn Adi, the caliph's uncle and governor of Syria, Palestine, and Jordan, had led the Abbasid armies against Marwan II at Zab, but he is best remembered for his massacres of the Umayyads. He put down several rebellions in what used to be the heartlands of Umayyad support, personally ordering the death of literally hundreds of their clansmen in the process. His victory at the pivotal battle of the Zab meant he had a large army full of loyal veterans to rely on, and he put them to good use mopping up the defiant remnants of Umayyad power. This wasn't a chore for Abdullah. In fact, I can't think of anyone who would have enjoyed it more. After taking Damascus, he defiled every grave in the royal cemetery and would howl in disappointment if the remains he were after had already decomposed. His son once asked him why he was whipping an Umayyad corpse he had dug up, and Abdullah responded by saying that this was the great Hisham, who had once had him lashed 60 times across the back during his reign. After mutilating Hisham's body, he had it cremated and its ashes scattered to the wind, something he had done to any Umayyad remains he came across. Now, I'm not saying that this story about Abdullah having a personal vendetta against the Umayyads isn't true, but if it's not, then we're left with the conclusion that his brutality towards them was so intense that it simply demanded explanation. He really let them have it, and eventually the local Syrian tribes submitted to his authority and joined his armies. I left Abu Jafar for last because as the caliph's brother, well, half-brother technically, he was officially next in line for the throne. That's right, one of the first things al Safah had done when he came to power was name two successors, his brother Abu Jafar and his nephew Isa ibn Musa, in that order. Therefore, while Abu Jafar lacked the impressive armies his two rivals, Abdullah ibn Ali and Abu Muslim, commanded, he could count on the advantage of official legitimacy. There isn't much more to add about him, and since he's next in line, we'll sort of cover his story as we trace his brother's reign. So now that we are done with our reintroductions, let us see how the three clashed. I was growing a little worried that I may be giving you the wrong impression by calling them rivals for the throne, but I'm sure this next part will clarify things abundantly. While we come across plenty of material that hints at the frayed relationships between these men, there are only two incidents worth mentioning, and both took place between Abu Jafar and Abu Muslim. Soon after the Abbasids took power, Al-Saffah asked his brother to go east to deliver the good news and accept pledges on his behalf. Now this was essentially a symbolic mission. The news didn't wait on an official emissary, and Abu Muslim had already taken everybody's pledges. I think what the caliph had in mind was some ceremony where the Abbasid Abu Jafar was publicly honored in his stead. Abu Muslim snubbed the whole visit though, and he didn't even deign to meet with Abu Jafar. In a more brutal version found in Al-Tabari, 
Abu Muslim had the two Arab commanders who did meet with Abu Jafar executed while the emissary was still there. His open disdain led Abu Jafar to ask his brother to have Abu Muslim put to death after he returned to Al-Saffah's court, but the caliph demurred, saying the Abbasids owed Abu Muslim too great a debt to simply execute him. That was the first incident, and it was the only interaction between these men for the next few years, as each was busy tending to affairs within his own zone. Abu Muslim stayed put in Khurasan until 754, when he wrote the caliph asking for permission to come visit. After receiving the expected approval, he made his way to Anbar with 8,000 men and vast riches from the east in tow, clearly intending to make an impression. His visit to the capital generated more rumors about tension between him and the caliph's brother. One account claims that Abu Muslim didn't acknowledge Abu Jafar when the latter walked into a room and greeted him one day, and after being questioned about it by the caliph, he slagged the guy off, calling him self-serving and inattentive to duty. It's hard to tell which of the details are true, but the bold headline is that there was a lot of friction between the pair. Conflict almost reared its head when Abu Muslim told the caliph that he had come all this way hoping to be allowed to lead the Hajj pilgrimage, an honor Al-Saffah had already promised to his brother. Not wanting to rebuff his linchpin of the East, the caliph forged a compromise where the two would lead the Hajj jointly. This is another point where we find lots of hearsay about the fraught relationship between the two. Stories about Abu Muslim insulting Abu Jafar in letters to other leaders within the caliphate, and ones about Abu Jafar trying to set up an execution before being stopped by his brother. It is difficult to take any of these seriously, especially since the two did end up leading the pilgrimage together. We're not told much about how that worked. It seems like Abu Jafar performed most of the ceremonies, but we find reports about Abu Muslim being very open-handed with all that wealth he had brought with him, trying to buy himself some goodwill and a better reputation among the Arabs. While they were making their way back from that awkward pilgrimage, a messenger reached Abu Jafar and informed him that his brother had passed away in Anbar, a death most sources attribute to smallpox. Abu Jafar was hailed as caliph and he quickly made his way back to Iraq to formalize his ascension. He first went to Kufa, Iraq's biggest city, and accepted pledges from its people at the mosque. Then he went to the caliph's court in nearby Anbar, where he found his nephew and successor Isa ibn Musa waiting. Isa had sent out messengers informing the various governors of al-Saffah's death, and had asked them to take pledges for Abu Jafar. He had also gathered in Anbar the wealth from all the treasuries he could get his hands on, so that the caliph had full financial control of the province's resources. You know I like to take my time when changing caliphs, right? Before laying one of the Ummah's leaders to rest, I usually list some of the characteristics or oddities about him which have remained in Arab memory. And with the new guy, I'd like to talk about what things were like for him before he came to power, and see how that sort of experience prepared him for the responsibilities which lay ahead. I will make an exception this time, however, as desperate times call for desperate measures, like the ones Isa had resorted to with the Ummah's wealth. So here's what had happened. It had taken about 15 days for news of Al-Saffah's death to reach Abu Jafar, and we can assume it took him just as long to make it back to the capital. In that month, Isa had heard back from most of the governors he had written to, with one dangerously critical exception, Abdullah ibn Ali. 
The Abbasid commander was at the northwestern edge of the caliphate, having been ordered to lead a summer raid against the Byzantines by the caliph. Upon hearing of al-Saffah's death, Abdullah called his men together, had the letter he had received read to them, and then announced that back when Marwan was marching his army to quash the Abbasid revolution, al-Saffah had promised to name whoever stood up to the Umayyad as his successor. Abdullah's loyal commanders all testified that they had witnessed this, and everyone pledged to support Abdullah as the true caliph, since he was the one who had led them to victory against the Umayyads. While our sources all agree on this part, things get messy right after Abdullah made his declaration somewhere in northern Syria. He may have written to Abbasids and loyalists across the caliphate, urging them to recognize his claim, but I don't want us to get distracted by any of the chatter. His power came from his large and experienced army, which he began marching east to Iraq before long, and that was the last Isa had heard before Abu Jafar arrived in Anbar. So, Abu Jafar already had a full-blown crisis on his hands. Luckily, Abu Muslim was still in nearby Hira, and the meeting between the two is of course contested, as you'd expect. Basically, it was two guys who didn't trust or like one another, trying to decide who should go deal with the danger barreling towards them before it was too late. Abu Muslim eventually agreed to lead the fight against the caliph's renegade uncle, but the range of explanations we get for how that came to be is impressively wide. There are accounts with a dutiful Abu Muslim eager to prove his loyalty to a ruthlessly distrustful caliph. There are accounts where the clever Abu Jafar tricks a skeptical Abu Muslim into accepting the job, either by playing on his pride and ambition, or the enmity between the Khurasanis and the Syrians. Finally, one of my favorites has Abu Muslim planning to just abandon the caliph like a thief in the night, leaving the two Abbasids to duke it out between themselves. After venting about this to his attendant later that night, however, he got a dressing down with his servant remarking how disappointed the people of Khurasan would be if they heard that he had shirked his duty towards the caliph. What eventually changed Abu Muslim's mind was the realization that this hypocrisy might leave the Khurasanis violently disposed towards him, especially since he had already killed over 100,000 in the east, justified on grounds of their disloyalty to the caliph. I realize I just listed three different explanations, and why they can't all be true, each highlights a different set of relevant themes helpful to keep in mind. There was distrust between Abu Jafar and Abu Muslim. There were still strong tensions between the Syrians and the Khurasanis, and Abu Muslim was an ambitious and clever operator who considered various alternatives before picking what he thought was best for him. Whichever version you fancy, Abu Muslim ultimately summoned a huge army from the east and led them to meet Abdullah ibn Ali in northern Mesopotamia. If you're wondering how he had time for all this, then I'm not sure I have a straightforward answer for you. Abdullah was held up for over 40 days by a siege in Armenia, after which he had to withdraw and regroup, but the details are sketchy. He must have started his rebellion in July, and the showdown between him and Abu Muslim wouldn't take place until November, so there's at least a couple months to account for besides getting started in the siege and all that, and I don't really know what to tell you. Details about the battle between them are equally vague. It was a big one but sadly we have no reliable estimates for the sizes of the two forces. Abdullah's military may have been the larger of the two, but it was riven with distrust. He had lots of loyal commanders, yes, but a sizable chunk of his army was of mixed Khurasani heritage from the east, and another came from the Syrian tribes he had only recently stopped slaughtering on the battlefield. 
On top of the enmity between these two groups, there's this one incredible story which says Abdullah was so worried about the effect Abu Muslim had on the Khurasanis in his army that he put 17,000 of them to death lest they betray him at a critical moment. I don't think that was very good for his army's morale, nor for the mood of their Khurasani adversaries. After months of grueling battles, Abu Muslim won a crushing victory at Nisibis, the old Sassanid garrison town which once lay on the frontier with the Byzantines. Abdullah ibn Ali ran all the way south to Basra, where he sought refuge with its governor, his brother Sulaiman. This was the end of Abdullah's rebellion, and he stayed in Basra for nearly a decade, either with or without the caliph's knowledge, depending on which accounts you believe. One down, two to go. You'd think this great service Abu Muslim had rendered, by securing the caliph's fledgling grain, would have been enough to put him in his good graces. But you'd be wrong. There wasn't even a honeymoon period or anything. The very next thing we're told is that Abu Jafar sent men to assess the war spoils, something Abu Muslim did not take kindly to, and he wrote a scathing letter to the caliph. A good line from it goes, quote, It seems you trust me with Muslim blood, but not anything you actually value, like gold and treasure. There are, of course, multiple versions of these interactions too, all of which took place over correspondence. Some say that the caliph had sent these dignitaries to congratulate Abu Muslim and that he had misunderstood. Others that these men were more like spies who the caliph expected Abu Muslim to keep close. Regardless what any one account tries to explain or explain away, we are left with the impression of a hopelessly damaged relationship between Abu Jafar and Abu Muslim. There's a long series of letters claiming that the caliph tried installing Abu Muslim in charge of Syria and Egypt, which suggests an attempt on his part to isolate the popular governor from his power base in Khurasan. It didn't go anywhere, but only because Abu Muslim fought hard against it, the whole while refusing to go meet the caliph to negotiate in person for fear of being assassinated. Although I don't have anything about this period that I feel is trustworthy, I could actually go on for quite a bit describing Abu Muslim's next few months. Al-Tabari has this long account where the Khurasani governor heads east, following him from town to town with descriptions of the letters he sent and the emissaries he received. It also looks back to Iraq every now and then to describe Abu Jafar's plans and reactions. It's almost 5,000 words long, which makes it longer than our average episode. It's not worth going through in detail, but the gist of it is that the caliph did everything he could to stop Abu Muslim from returning to where he was most in control. He cajoled and bribed Abu Muslim's trusted men so they would convince him to pay the caliph a visit in Iraq, something he resisted at every turn. We're told Abu Jafar's masterstroke came when he wrote to Abu Muslim's deputy governor Abu Dawood, one of the original twelve principles of the Dawah, telling him he would be the new master of the East should anything happen to Abu Muslim. Abu Dawood then wrote to Abu Muslim, telling him the men of the East always obeyed their caliph and would put him to death if he returned to the province without the caliph's blessing. That was the letter which convinced Abu Muslim that his only way forward was to go back to Iraq and try to win the caliph's favor. It's difficult to wring the truth out of a story I have a hard time believing, but the real trouble is that Al-Tabari's version ends with over half a dozen different finales. Let's switch over to Al-Yaqubi's from here on out. 
He writes that the caliph was delighted when he received Abu Muslim's letter, finally confirming that he was on his way to Anbar. Right away he began making plans to have him killed, and instructed five guards on where to hide in his court. Abu Muslim was forced to leave his armies in nearby Madain, and before the fateful meeting between the two, he was stripped of his sword and made to wait one hour before Abu Jafar showed up. Abu Muslim tried to humble himself before the caliph, but the latter immediately launched into a long tirade, listing a litany of charges against the governor. He called him a pretender to greatness, accused him of having been deliberately disrespectful when putting his own name before the caliph's and letters he had sent, and most unforgivably, of trying to wed the caliph's aunt. The implication in that last one was that Abu Muslim wanted to sire a son with Abbasid blood, a clear threat to the dynasty's stability down the line. Abu Muslim made a feeble attempt at denying these charges, but the caliph lost his temper and gestured to his guards, who emerged from the shadows and made quick work of the unarmed man. Before we turn the page on this influential figure of early Abbasid history, there's still a bit of controversy left, regarding the troops he had brought with him to Iraq and who were staying nearby. Some accounts claim that the caliph intended to fight them, but managed to convince their commanders that they owed their allegiance to him and not Abu Muslim, and thus averted unwanted bloodshed. Others, that these troops learned about Abu Muslim's execution and bolted east to Khurasan, but that the caliph's agents managed to kill their leaders before they posed a threat to the new order. Whatever took place, by the end of it, Abu Dawood was confirmed as the province's governor, and he took everybody's pledges for Abu Jafar. The new caliph's authority finally officially extended all the way east, and from here on out we'll refer to him by his fitting royal title, Al-Mansur, the Triumphant. Despite this ostensible finality, it won't be the last we'll hear about Abu Muslim. News of his betrayal caused an uproar in the east, making him a potent figure which local movements put to use against the caliphate in very different ways. See, in Khurasan, he was this sincere local boy who managed to raise himself from bondage to power and liberate his people from the cruel caliphate, only to be betrayed by the Abbasids whom he had helped empower. Accounts about Abu Muslim from elsewhere are far less flattering. A pro-Abbasid stance would highlight how the Dawah raised him from slavery to command, then blame him for being a traitorous, power-hungry, and insincere Muslim. This dissonance comes from the roles he played in the dynasty's journey to power, being critical to its success at the outset before becoming a threat to its stability, all in under a decade. As a result, his backstory is so contradictory that the movements which went on to try and co-opt his name spanned a really wide range of purpose, from Islamic reform to crypto-Zoroastrianism. We'll cover them as we go along, as there's no escaping Abu Muslim's enduring legacy. There was so much action in today's episode that we didn't really have a chance to analyze most of what we covered. We didn't even properly introduce the Ummah's latest caliph, let alone say much about the last one. We'll give these matters their due attention next time, then take a look at how the caliphate was changing under the new dynasty, and the consequences these transformations had for the Ummah, here on the Caliphs the rise and fall of Arab power.